0: Bible with me and turn to Romans chapter 1, the anchor passage that we'll be looking at. We'll be touching back over and over tonight is in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. We've been in a series entitled Downpour, based out of this scripture in Hosea where we read that God will come to us like the rain, a darting, a driving rain, a drenching rain. He will pour out His Spirit upon us. This curriculum that we've been following by Dr. James McDonald, but has been rooted in God's Word, has brought us some understanding of what it looks like for revival to take place. A.W. Tozer has also been kind of guiding us in some of these thoughts along with the Scripture, reminding us that until we have a very clear picture of who God is, revival won't take place. And so the last couple of weeks we looked at the pictures of God on the throne. Tonight, we're going to shift, and and once we begin to see who God is and how holy He is and the picture of God on the throne, the next picture that we have to be able to embrace, we have to be able to see, is sin in the mirror. I don't know about you, I don't really like to spend a lot of time searching in the mirror for sin. The evangelical church is not really good at finding sin in the mirror we we are pretty good at finding sin other places and we can highlight and point out other people who we feel like they have sin going on in their life but there is a very important ingredient to a downpour to an outpouring of God's spirit in our midst and not only do we have to see God clearly we need to see ourselves more clearly and so tonight i want to share with you about the seriousness of sin and and we're going to spend the entire night talking about sin. Now I recognize that whenever we take this amount of time just to talk about sin, there is at least a couple different responses. One is, oh my goodness, are you serious? How depressing. I don't want to hear about sin and how horrible it is and how much it separates us from God. And and we can look at this topic of sin from the side of condemnation and the side of depression and guilt and we can begin to feel a heavy weight on us It may be the holy spirit convicting us It may be the enemy speaking lies to us where there's shame, you know Shame is never from god guilt We may have guilt and the holy spirit Reveals the guilt in our life, but shame is from the enemy but it could be looked at as, well, what a depressing topic. But it also could be looked at as the other side as well. But well, and I really see what sin is and how serious it is and, and how deep sin goes and the great consequences of sin. And if I'm looking at it through the lens of the forgiveness that's been given to me, as the debt grows, my joy grows for how much I've been forgiven. I think there's another aspect of how we can look at this topic of sin and we can see this as something that's completely outdated, old school, hellfire and brimstone. Let's get relevant. Now, our culture needs to hear about God's love and grace and mercy. Let's, let's not spend so much time talking about sin. There's some very popular preachers that, that I think they love Jesus. who Their opinion and, and, and persuasion would be is that people already know that they're sinful, therefore we need to spend all of our time telling them about the grace and love that God has for them. Well, don't misunderstand me. I believe that we need to preach about the love and grace that god has but i think the problem with this view of a of a message or teaching on sin is that we miss a huge chunk of scripture this is all over the bible in every book of the bible just about every chapter of the bible you'll you'll either find the word sin or unrighteousness or ungodliness or or some description of a specific sin or a category of sin of, of going against god and so this is a very big subject throughout scripture and so we can't Overlook it. I guess a fourth way to look at a message like this is, finally, someone's going to just lay down the law on sin of those people. And let's, let's preach more about sin for those people. But I guess I want to suggest to you tonight that only one of those views is going to be helpful. It's the one that was the second that I shared about the victory that we can have over sin. Because it's not my intent tonight to beat you up with a a very large list of scriptures we're going to walk through. It's not my intent to try to scare anybody into being more obedient because of some fear of some kind of hell, fire, and brimstone. Though those are very real realities we need to understand, the lake of fire that we will face. I also don't want us to fall into a trap of beginning to think that talking so plainly and clearly about sin is somehow irrelevant to our world it's extremely relevant i don't want us to get so excited about pointing sin out in somebody else and say i am so glad that this message is being preached i want my friend over there to hear it but could there be something that god has for us Uh, the core the the cream of the crop on sunday night here at grace point to come together and say god what do you want to say to me about sin and and go a next step farther to say god what about this picture of sin in the mirror until we see God clearly, we can never get to the downpour, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Until we see ourselves more clearly, we'll never get to the outpouring that God has for us. Look with me at Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The first thought, if you're taking notes, I want you to see that we're going to look at. The first of three key points in, in this section is that sin brings God's wrath. Sin brings God's wrath. And it would be very popular to say, well, well, that was an Old Testament thing and we don't really focus on the wrath of God with sin. But yet, that's not the picture we find through the whole of Scripture Before Paul could get to the glory of the grace in Jesus Christ that he speaks so much about in the book of Romans, he had to detail out this very real problem of sin. If we don't see the seriousness of sin, we will never be able to rightly comprehend or understand not only why sin is so bad, but why grace and mercy of God is so great. Sin, as simple as I can put it, is is a failure to conform to God's law. Sin, according to to Romans 6.23, it tells us the wages of sin is death. Now, tonight I'm going to go through a laundry list of Scripture, and if you're fast enough to turn to it, you're welcome to try. But my hunch is I'm going to go faster than what your fingers can get to, so they're listed there in your outline. And the reason I went to the effort of making sure you had that is, is don't just take my word for it. Don't ever just take my word for it. Take your time to study God's Word. And I believe that God not only wants us to get a clear picture of who we are in the mirror and the the sin that may be in the mirror, but he also wants us to be able to speak intelligently and speak from experience about what sin is and be able to help another brother or sister biblically to understand sin. And so it's not enough to say, well, this is what my pastor said. Who cares what your pastor said? Show your friend, show your family member what God's word says about sin. Well, as we look here, we see sin brings this wrath of God. Romans 6:23 tells us the wages of sin is death and, and a classical definition for us in our faith tradition is James 4:17. Anyone who knows the good that he or she ought to do and doesn't do it sins. So we see this penalty, the wage of sin is death and and sin is not just the things that we commit. It is lawlessness, it is going against God's will, but it's also the things that we omit, the things that we don't do. It's the bad that we do, it's the good that we don't do, it's any deviation from God's plan for us, rebelling against God is sin. Letter A is going to help us as we begin to unpack over the next couple of thoughts or points here, a theology of sin, an understanding of sin. If we don't get a clear picture of what sin is, how will we be able to identify it in the mirror when it shows up? God's law, or the origin of sin. I want us to look at that. God's law, the origin of sin. Genesis 2.16. Listen as I read to you some of these verses. And the Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. And then as we go on to Genesis three, six, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she also desired it, it gave wisdom and she wanted some. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it as well. This beginning of sin it came in the garden, and I know we know this well, but we need to understand that this was a choice that Adam and Eve made. I think sometimes in jests, individuals may say, well, Eve did this first and before we get all excited about that, guys, we followed suit and we ate it as well. And and the whole point here is that man and woman, we chose to go against God's clear direction to stay away from this tree in the garden and we did it because we wanted our way. Romans 5.12 is a very important verse, I think, in understanding this theology of sin. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all have sinned. I remember thinking that this was extremely unfair. I mean, God, why do I inherit a sin nature because Eve got hungry for fruit she shouldn't have? Why should I be plagued with a sin nature because Adam decided to follow Eve and eat the fruit that she shouldn't have? It's unfair. You know, I don't know if you ever read scripture and things just don't make sense to you. It seems unfair. I had a mentor of mine tell me, Brady, you need to develop a shelf in your mind. A mental shelf where you can place things that don't make sense and you can let it sit there for a while. And over time, God will speak to that. And, and so I did that and I took that verse and, and I asked lots of questions and no one seemed to be able to answer them in a way that would satisfy my heart. Until one day, I read a verse that said, because one man sinned, all must die And then because one man dies, all may live. This very clear understanding of what sin is, it tells us that because one has sinned, all have inherited sin. But the scales are balanced when Jesus pays the price for us. But to even get to that, we have to understand we are culpable, we are accountable, we are responsible for the sin that we inherit, this original sin psalm fifty one five says surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me this morning we talked about that me monster, that selfishness that creeps up even out of a two year old No one teaches us this attitude. we are born with this romans five ten says while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? In other words, while you and I were shaking our fist at God in sinful rebellion, He died for us in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.21, once you were alienated from God, you were enemies of God. Make no mistake that sin is very serious. It started in the garden. It was this willful disobedience against God. It's been passed down from generation to generation. And it separates us from God. We are at odds with God. James four, 4 You adulterous people, don't you know that your friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Brady, we're like on. Letter A. There's like a lot of Scripture references. It's Sunday night. Don't you understand? Like we don't have to have all this extra stuff. Like go easy on us. Let's go back to like the flute offertory. Come on. Like help me out. I was having fun then. Now I'm not. What's the point of all these verses? Just tell us sin's bad. God's good. Let's go home. Go to Culver's. Well, friend, I believe that God wants to do something in our midst and give us a downpour and outpouring of his spirit, and until we are reminded of the very strong seriousness of sin, an understanding of a theology of sin, reminded of it, and passing it on to those around us, we will miss how good it is. Could it be that we don't praise God the way that we ought to, is because we don't understand how far we have drifted from God. Ephesians 2 3 says All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. Ephesians 2, 3 says. I guess to take this approach that... The wrath of God is no longer relevant. Sin is no longer something that is dealt with in the New Testament era. That's an Old Testament thing. You've got to cut out major chunks of Scripture, not one verse, not two, chapter upon chapter of the Bible. John three thirty-six: whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This is the origin of sin, God's law. Let's look now at the extent of sin. First John 1 John 1.8 If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. As a good Wesleyan, sometimes we are not sure what to do with this verse. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But the extent of our sin is that every single one of us have sinned and every single one of us have areas where we are desperately in need of God's correction in our life. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. What's the extent of this sin? It's all encompassing. It's, it's all damning for us on our way to hell. It's all encompassing for every human. 1 Timothy five twenty four says, The sin of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. This is important for us to remember that some people we begin to see and they can identify, man, my sin is so public. Everybody knows. And others, it appears that their sin is secret. But remember, the consequences are trailing behind. It will all come out. Sin will be made known. It will become public. Sometimes we think as we look and we see sin in the mirror, we say, I don't know if I could confess this. It would be so embarrassing, not near as embarrassing as it would be if it had to be forced out instead of confessed. And this consequence of sin, the reality of sin, the seriousness of sin is so real that we desperately need to look in the mirror and say, God, if there is any wicked way in me, cut it out, carve it out, scrape it out. From Jesus' own teachings, he gives us graphic words that are definitely not pg like things in the bible we go is this even allowed if your eye causes you to sin gouge it out if a limb of your body is causing you to sin cut it off oh jesus is exaggerating again was he so god wants us to pluck out an eye or cut off a hand or a foot i think what he says is stop sinning it's it's that serious as tragic as it would be to, to pluck out an eye or to cut off a limb, how pointless that would be. Just stop sinning. That's the extent of the sin. Let's look at the intent of sin. The, the sin's will, where it takes us, it will pursue you. Genesis 4-7, if you do what is right, you will not, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door it desires to have you but you must rule over it sin is crouching at your door ready to devour you the seriousness of sin is that no matter who we are no matter where we are no matter how long we've walked with god no matter if we are walking with god or not the reality of sin is real for every single human being and sin is crouching at our door, ready to destroy us. Don't get to the place where you feel like, that is not for me, that's for someone else. There has to be an understanding of sin and the seriousness of sin. It's to pursue you. It's also to disappoint you. Hebrews eleven twenty-five. He chose to be mistreated along with the other people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. While sin may have a season where it appears to bring joy or pleasure, it is always short-lived. It sounds like a parent giving a lecture to an adolescent. But yet when we look at our own life, we find sinful actions, sinful attitudes, sins of omission, sins of commission that we don't seem to think are as serious, but yet they lead to disappointment over and over. Hebrews 12.1 talks to us how this intent of sin is to trip us up. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. I think of it as traps that Satan puts out for us to, to snare us. Any of you ever been into trapping animals? My grandfather would trap muskrat. I don't know that I've ever seen a muskrat, but he would trap them. And I've seen his traps, and I remember walking in his garage, and I was intrigued to touch them. He said, don't touch those. They're dangerous. Once you get in that trap, it's next to impossible to get out of that type of trap. This Trap that satan lays out for us it's good for us to pray god would you spray paint them neon so i can see the trap because sin's intent is to pursue you to devour you its intent is to trip you up every single time and not just for a moment it's to enslave you for a life romans six sixteen. do you not know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves you are slaves of the one that you obey whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obe- obedience, which leads to righteousness. It's this idea that if we are living in a life of sin, we are enslaved to it. This sin that we talk about brings God's wrath upon us. Also, to see this theology of sin, we need to look at the intent of sin. It also, it's to expose you, Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. Whoever conceals their sin, does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Numbers thirty-two twenty-three. But if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Last week we talked about revival. We talked about not only historic revival that we find in Scripture, and not only of of eons ago, but even in our lifetime, as we begin to look at the outpouring in Wilmore, Kentucky, that spread across our country at the Asbury Revival. As Dr. Kinlaw recounts the ingredients that took place, it was not leadership, it was not their great preparation, it was by God's design at His time. There were people praying, but it was marked by the confession and the repentance of sin, which led to joy, which led to praise which led to more confession and repentance of sin. Look back at our verse for tonight, Romans 1, 18 through 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Sin brings God's wrath. And second, sin is inexcusable. Not only brings God's wrath, but it's, it's not okay. How do we come to this conclusion? And the verse we just read, who suppresses the truth by their wickedness. And it's by their own wickedness we begin to see their own actions. It's not excusable. They have brought it upon themselves. Now let's look at a few verses on this. We well, come to this conclusion that it's inexcusable because, one, I turn from the truth. Therefore, I am responsible when you and I make a decision to say, God, this is your will, and I choose to put my will above your will, it's inexcusable. I am responsible for my choice to turn from the truth. As it relates to my life, I turn from the truth, therefore I am responsible. It's this stiff arm that we give God. God, no further. Second, it's inexcusable when we see that my conscience convicts me i can try to plead ignorance but in the very dna that god has given to us he has made plain to us his goodness verse 19 of romans chapter 1 since that excuse me since what may be known about god is plain to them because god has made it plain to them in the very dna of every human god has planted seeds of awareness of God. They may not have all the knowledge of God. He will reveal it to them in different ways, general and specific revelation. But there is clarity that God can bring that we are accountable for the light that he has shown to us. Now, don't misunderstand that our conscience is not to be our guide, contrary to what Jiminy Cricket would want us to believe. If I follow my conscience, my conscience could be skewed. I can begin to do wrong long enough that it no longer affects my conscience. I can begin to see that my conscience can be seared to the point where I have no feeling anymore. But that does not neglect the fact that I am accountable to the conscience that God has given to me. Whether I allow it to be seared or not, there is some culpability that takes place. 1 Timothy 4 2 says, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose conscience have been seared as with a hot iron. The conscience can convict us, the Holy Spirit will convict us, but we also see that my Creator convicts me. I have no excuse. Last week and the week before we talked about the greatness of God being displayed in all of creation, from the human body to the galaxies, to the universe, to every aspect of creation around us, it reminds us that there is a creator. God is God, and you and I are not. You've heard the illustration before that it seems to be a silly argument to waste time talking about if there's a creator or not, that when you see something like a watch, it doesn't just happen, it screams out, there's a watchmaker. And whenever I hear this illustration shared, I just think that is so not even close to what we're talking about. How much more complex is your hand than a watch? Let alone your eye or your heart that beats your brain that thinks your entire body. Let alone the universe around us and all the things he keeps in order. It screams out that there is a God. And so therefore, our understanding of sin is that it's not, well, I I had no idea. It's not that I'm not so sure. God has set up His universal law, and any deviation from God is sin. It warrants His wrath. It is inexcusable. It's not okay until we look at ourselves in the mirror. Until we begin to ask the question, do I see sin in the mirror? I'll never get to the place of the downpour. I want to pause right here in our curriculum as strong as it has been. It's been a great guide for us. There's a piece that I think is missing. A piece that we need to wave a banner long and loud. As Wesleyans, we have not just a strong definition of sin for the sake of harping on sin, but our strong definition of sin helps us have a very clear and strong definition of grace. We are convinced that we are to no longer live in chains bound by willful disobedience. If you come from a faith tradition other than the Wesleyans or the Church of the Nazarene or the Free Methodist or a sister denomination like that, sometimes when you hear me talk about sin, you may be looking at another biblical definition of every broad definition. There's broad definition and a specific or narrow definition of sin. But in this conversation, I'm speaking of willful disobedience against God. The James 4.17, anyone who knows the good that he or she ought to do and doesn't do it, sin-type definition. Friend, you and I don't have to stay stuck in the willful disobedience day after day after day after day. So how does this play into the curriculum that we're talking about? It's not just understanding how holy God is. It's not just understanding how sinful I am. It's the realization that He has given us the power of the Holy Spirit to live in victory over this sin. Is it that I no longer have any air in me when Scripture says that I am to be made perfect? Well, what does that look like? As I've shared with some of you before, the best way that it's been described to me is is if we would take a pen. My favorite type of pen is a G2 gel pen. You may have another pen you like. That's fine. You have the right to be wrong, but the best one is the G2 gel pen. The cost ratio effect of how much it costs and how awesome it is, it is the perfect pen in my opinion. Whether you have a Mont Blanc Or your v7, whatever carry you grade papers with. I don't like that one at all. This is my favorite pen But as much as I like it, sometimes I do weird things I may bust the clip off or I may chew on the end of that pen and and if you would look at it You'd say this is no longer a new pen It is definitely flawed. It's got bite marks on it. It's got the clip that's busted off half the ink is already used And so in the understanding of this pen being perfect, being without any error or flaw, it is far from perfect. But yet, as Dr. Prince often would say, the pen is made perfect for its purpose. It writes perfectly Even though the clip is busted off Even though there's teeth marks on it Even though half the ink is gone Even though it is no longer fresh and brand new It is made perfect for its purpose And I love to write with it Therefore when God creates us To be holy as he is holy He makes us perfect It is not that I am without any flaw or defect But I no longer have to stay stuck In willful disobedience My purpose to obey God and live for God I can be freed from willful disobedience Free from the sin It's, I think, important for us to be able to talk plainly about this. As I prayed for our time tonight, uh, my time was limited to pray for tonight, to be honest. So I prayed quickly. You ever pray quickly? I prayed quickly, Lord, help me, help us get it. That was the extent of the prayer. Lord, help me, help us get it. Because I think we're in danger of thinking, well, this topic of sin is one that is so elementary to us, that we are good Westlands, we we no longer sin in word, thought, and deed every day. We've had victory, so therefore, what does this have to do with us? It has everything to do with us. There should be celebration that erupts when we understand more clearly how unacceptable sin is. More clearly the wrath of God against sin, and we begin to see what He has brought freedom in our life from. But I think even maybe more poignantly tonight is, could you christian brother or sister articulate to a family member could you articulate to a friend why sin is so serious not in your own words not in my words but through scripture and could you begin to talk to a person about how there could be victory over sin and i want to take the balance of our time in the next couple of minutes to look at some very clear differences that we often get confused about this is no longer in your notes this is extra i'm not charging this for you, this for you okay so it's free You can write down on the margins, or if you run out of paper, write on your friend's arm or something like that. But we need to understand that when we're talking about sin, many, many people live under false guilt because they are struggling with temptation, thinking that if they were a good Christian, they would no longer have temptation. Temptation and sin are two very different things. Confession of sin, repentance from sin leads to revival, but even in the height of revival, temptation will increase. As one theologian says, you cannot help a bird from flying over your head. But if a bird's going to build a nest in your hair, or goatee in my case, in some of your cases I see, you have to actively participate. It's the same thing with temptation and sin. You cannot help that... Satan will throw a dart of temptation at you. It will happen over and over again for the rest of your life here on earth. But for you to entertain that temptation, to give it a place to rest, a place to build a case in your mind, is to fall to that temptation which leads to sin. We see a classic passage in Matthew 4, 1-11 through 11, of how Jesus was tempted. I won't take the time to walk through that tonight. But jot down Matthew one, excuse me, Matthew four, one through eleven, looking at the temptation to indulge in pleasure, the temptation to satisfy uh, the power and prestige, and the temptation to gain possessions are the very similar categories that Satan will come after us. But I want to emphasize on how we can resist this temptation and not fall into this willful disobedience. And this is where I think it has traction for you and I tonight. When we look in the mirror and say, God, is there any wicked way in me? Would you remove it? I think for some faith traditions, they would feel like we can't get to revival unless that uh, I have willful disobedience again. And so a pattern for revival is I must go out and, and sin every single day. And therefore, then when I confess sin, I can have revival. I believe there's a whole better pattern that we see all throughout the book of Acts we're talking about. is the power of the Holy Spirit giving us the victorious life. So what do I do when I find temptation in my life? What do I do when I find disobedience in my life? First, know your weakness. I guess even before that, do you want willful disobedience to stop? If you don't want sin to stop in your life, you just want to keep repenting, then everything else I say is not helpful. So like stop listening and, I don't know, pack up your stuff and get ready to go. But if you want sin to stop in your life, look at the area of weakness and build some things into that. Be honest with yourself. Is it the lust of the eye? Is it the the pride of life? Where is this temptation to come in? Is it a temptation in attitude? Is it a temptation in action? Is it a temptation to not act? Have a plan to stay away from that weak area. I can't tell you how many men I talk to that they say, Pastor Brady, I'm struggling with an area of lust. And, and I often try to earn the right to get in their face and say, what avenue does this come in at? Many will say it comes through my phone or through my computer. It comes through the Internet. I ask them, what are you doing to limit how private your access is to those things? Pull the plug. Be honest with yourself. There's many in this room, that that's not where Satan's going to attack you. He's not going to come at you through a a window of lust. He's going to come at you from a whole other angle. Uh, How often are you being honest with yourself about where that temptation comes from? Don't dwell on that. Guard your mind. Every single sin, every single disobedience, everything that warrants the wrath of God starts with a thought that Satan plants in your mind. It all enters through the mind. Guard your thought life. What you think, you will become. Generations of past have told us that watching certain things, viewing certain things, listening to certain things are bad for us, and they are very true, but I think maybe we missed along the way that we began to harp on what was bad and wrong and not explain why, and we have generations that don't quite understand. We need to be very clear with those who we have relationship with and say, hey, listen, if you fill your mind with these marginal things, you begin to become what you think about. Fill your mind with the things that are good. And don't get in a debate of how far can you go. Just how good is it? Get in a debate about how good can it be for you? When you're fighting temptation, fill your brain with Scripture. Fill your brain with praise. Ask God to come into that moment. His name was Joel. It was about uh, 14 years ago now, and he gave me permission at least not in his state and other states, to share a little bit of his story. He struggled with the sin of lust and pornography. And, and I remember the day that Joel got victory. It wasn't some deep wisdom on my part. I, I feel like I probably wasn't helpful for a long period of time. And then finally the Holy Spirit just planted words in my mouth that came out. And I said, when you find a temptation to see an image on the screen, well, why don't you pray for that woman as if she was your sister, and asked Jesus to move in her life. And he said, Brady, I I tried that, and it began to spoil the appetite that I had for this. He invited Jesus into that area of temptation. I've picked out this one because it's one that I think we don't talk about very often, that is statistically prevalent very much in our culture, even in the church. What if we applied this to bitterness? jealousy, a get-even spirit? What if we applied this to slothfulness? What if we applied this to things that we made idols over God, addictions that we had, whether they're substance or whether they are of something as culturally acceptable? What if we said, God, would you come into this and sanctify this for me? Saturate yourself with Scripture. Have an accountability partner. I've asked our staff the last two weeks ask myself along with them who is it in your life that you have given permission to ask you the tough questions church i want to ask you the same thing i'm not asking you who your sunday school teacher is or who your small group leader is i'm asking you who have you given permission to ask you the tough things it may be that person But have you given the right to somebody to get in your face and say, Hey, how are you doing with Jesus? How are your eyes? How are your thoughts? How are your actions? Are you living in obedience? And a final thought for us of resisting temptation, staying free from willful disobedience, staying connected to the life source in Christ. The best way to fight temptation is to stay connected to a fresh word from Jesus. I think sometimes when we talk about devotions, when we talk about a prayer life, when we talk about studying God's Word, it can turn into a guilt thing or it can turn into a pride thing very fast. But if it was a life source thing, I think it would be much healthier for us. Few people come to me and brag about how much lunch they ate. <laughs> how much lunch should you eat? I don't know, till you're full. What should you eat for lunch? Well, not only what tastes good, but what feeds your body. How long should my devotions be? I don't know. Get full spiritually. How often should I have them? I don't know. Don't starve to death. Like, I eat every day. Eat every day. Well, well, should I do it twice a day? I don't know. Are you hungry? Eat. If we viewed it not as as a chore, as some kind of task that we punched a card somewhere, if we viewed it more as, God, would would you safeguard me? We come to this picture of sin in the mirror instead of, Being overloaded with guilt, we lift our hand in praise and say, God, you have set me free from food addiction. You have set me free from being a professional Pharisee. You have set me free from being one who likes to portray something better than it is. You have set me free from you fill in the blank of whatever it is for you. The takeaway tonight, God is doing something in our midst. He has a downpour for us. But if we try to fast forward over this picture of sin in the mirror, you may be left out of the great revival. I may be left out of the great revival. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, your word that has been so clear tonight, old and new. About how serious sin is. How holy and just you are. And how you cannot accept willful disobedience. You cannot accept how far that we are from you. We have all fallen short of your glory. And yet God, you didn't come to save us. So we could be stuck on this merry-go-round time and time again. Lord, would you help us find the cycle of victorious living. And over the next week or two, as we begin to unpack this together, God, I pray that the the rains of revival, the downpour of your Spirit, will begin to shower down on us as we get real honest and transparent. Lord, right now I thank you for the heritage that's been built for us and an understanding of the freedom from willful disobedience that we can have. But God, would you protect us from a skewed idea that We no longer are tempted. We no longer are subject to the evil that Satan has for us every single day, crouching at our door, ready to devour. God, when we find an aspect of sin in the mirror, would you call us to confession and not to concealment? God, I'm hungry for your outpouring. And Lord, instead of us pointing the finger at somebody else, somewhere else, would you search me? Would you search us? And if you find any aspect of wickedness, would you carve it out? Would you cut it out? We surrender to you again. It's in your son's powerful name we pray. Amen and amen. My challenge for you tonight as you go is to take this discussion of sin to your dinner table or whatever you do on Sunday night at 7.02. Well, that's a lot of fun to talk about at Culver's or at the house. I tell you what, many of you have a similar victory a place of victory that you're praying from. And I think if you begin to verbalize what it is that God has saved you from in your life, it will spark not only praise and joy, but give you an opportunity to pass on to the next generation around you what Jesus is longing to do again. God bless you. Thanks for your attention to his word. You're dismissed.